This is In Residence Town Hall Conversations. I'm Steve Scheer. Thanks for joining me again. Astrophysicist Roberto Trotta is a working scientist and science educator. He set himself the task of communicating modern cosmology using the most common 1,000 words of the English language. The edge of the sky, all you need to know about the all there is, rose out of Trotta's idea that it should be possible to talk about very hard things in a straightforward way that all people can understand. Without using energy or a particle or even universe, Trotta attempts to lay out the Big Bang Theory, the size of space, the theory of relativity. Thanks for talking to me. Such a pleasure. Great to be here with you, Steve. Would you read just a little, just a paragraph to give folks a flavor of what you, uh, what you're trying to achieve? Sure. Here is a passage that I particularly like. She steps outside in the cold night, holding her cup of hot coffee with both hands. The white road is beautiful in the dark, clear sky, and once again, she can't help but be amazed by it all. It does not matter how many times she has seen this before or how much she knows about what is out there. The sight of the stars is enough to make her gasp. So that's a passage that follows one of the two main characters of the book, uh, a student person, a student woman, actually, because scientist is not one of the words that I can use in my limited lexicon. So a student woman going out to Big Seer, the second sort of character in the book, which is one of the biggest telescopes on Earth. And Another word you can't use. Well, Earth, no, exactly. It's another <laughs> word which is out of bounds. So Earth becomes our home world. And together they try to puzzle out what dark matter is. It felt a little bit like I was reading a fable. Mm-hmm. An elder mm-hmm. might be uh, sharing in a tribal society maybe 10,000 years ago or maybe 10,000 years from now to people who were uh, uneducated and ignorant about science. And I, I'm trying to puzzle out if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But would you agree with that assessment? Well, I think if you, if you feel that way, uh, that's, that's great. And one of the aims of my book is precisely to talk about these concepts and these ideas in ways that are novel and different from everyday language. And so this limited lexicon of the thousand most common words tries to do just that, to put a refreshing new uh, quote, if you like, on these ideas that are somehow familiar for some people and perhaps some people have never uh, encountered before. Um, you, you are right. I think the text does read a little bit like a, a pre-language text or a post-language text, depending on your view whether you are pre-apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic. But in a sense, it's like as if we didn't have all the words that we now have for all the things, and we are trying to puzzle it all out again. And so uh, the fairy tale or sort of the folkloric story type of type of uh, uh, impression, I, I think, is quite accurate, and I would be happy with that. But, but why aren't you running the risk of... Uh mystifying science or turning science into something that people will see as as magical well there is magic in science I mean, Arthur C. Clarke the great science fiction writer famously said that an advanced enough uh, technological society has technology that's undistinguishable from magic and so in a sense our science today gives us a sort of magical magical power in a sense of course I don't mean I don't mean this in the sense uh, of, of, ma- of making science mystical but I do mean to bring back this this sense of wonder to science I think we by over intellectualizing science we are we're risking making it sterile and dry while science is all but science is about passion creativity endeavor sometimes frustration all of those things play a role for us the working scientists and I, I'm attempting with my book to try and communicate some of that to to the public as well to communicate science, which is what you're doing, not just in this, but in a number of other venues. Um, it's, it's, 
to push back against the forces that have uh, uh, arrayed themselves against science, that, are, that have prejudice or bigotry about aspects of science that they choose not to accept. What would be a way that you can educate those people with a concept like this to, uh, to open their minds? Opening minds is important to me, and opening hearts as well, not just minds. I want to speak to, to, the, to people's hearts, not just to their brains with, with this new format of talking about science. Science is important in our society in so many ways. It's at the heart of our technological advancement, it's at the heart of our well-being, economical growth, and also all of the immense opportunities and possibilities that science opens to us. So science is important in all of our lives. And it's very important that everybody has a, has a little bit of an inkling of what science is about. The kind of science that I... I'm interested in doing, um, which is fundamental science, is especially difficult to, um, to sell to the public, if you like, because while the public at large are very supportive by and large about astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology, because they're fascinated by the very same questions that we are fascinated by, well, we also, we also have to com- keep justifying to the public who pay through their taxes our jobs and our facilities, why are we doing, why is it important to be doing this job? And so to these people and to the other people who perhaps don't like certain aspects of science, it's important for that us, the working scientists, keep coming back and telling them, look, what we are doing here is important. It's about our very place in the universe. It's understanding how we came to be on this planet at this time in cosmic age and what is the fundamental nature of reality, the fundamental destiny of the universe. And as Wilson famously put it, the first Fermilab director, when he was being asked by congressmen uh, why and how all the money being spent on building Fermilab was going to be uh, useful in defending the United States. That was at the height of the Cold War in the 60s. While Wilson replied, maybe this won't make the United States more defendable or it won't help defend the United States, but it will make it worthwhile defending. And so that's, that's, my, that's my take on this. This science might not change our lives in the short term, but in the, in the longer run, in the greater scale of things, it will make our lives more interesting, more fulfilling, and more full of interesting ideas. Well, do one thought experiment with me. Imagine, if you will, that uh, somebody who is uh, fundamentally not believing that uh, it's possible for the universe not to have been created by an all-knowing being. Mm. How would uh, you have them read The Edge of the Sky in order to, um, to challenge their notion? The Edge of the Sky tries to convey in a, in a very short, thin book all we know about the all there is, that's to say the universe. But equally, about half of the book is about all the things that we don't know about the all there is. And so reading the book, one discovers how we've learned many, many things about the universe and the way we've done so in very simple words, and which are hopefully uh, easy to understand to everybody, but also one discovers the many, many things that we still don't know. And so my answer to your question is that insofar as we've been able to push back the, the, the blanket of ignorance about the universe, we've learned many incredible things of, uh, about the universe, but there's always things that we still don't know and still, uh, still things that we have to learn. And so um, the take that science has on the world is but one way of looking at reality, and other people have other ways of looking at, at this very same reality, and I think that's important too, that people can debate about you know, the Big Bang. Well, the, the Big Bang is a fact. We know that the Big Bang did happen 13.7 billion years ago, but science has nothing to say about what happened before the Big Bang and, and where the Big Bang came from, etc. So uh, that's where our knowledge stops. And one day we might be able to push back further, but at the moment we don't know. So there's always don't knows in science. There always will be. But our knowledge stops there. 
does, so that leaves people free to make up stories, but that doesn't mean that the stories they make up are helpful in furthering our knowledge. And that's a conundrum for, I would think, a scientist trying to also educate people about what's happening. I think it's important to, um, to draw a line between what, what is known scientifically, what are the scientific facts and, and the knowledge that we have acquired through the use of science and the knowledge that we might be able to acquire in, in, in the future, and what is the meaning of that knowledge. And so science is silent about meaning. Science is about facts and knowledge and, and the how of things, but the why of things, the, the meaning of the universe, the meaning of our lives is something that resides with, with, with each individual. And so as such, science has nothing to say about it. So I, I don't see a, a problem in uh, uh, looking at the universe in many different ways. And one important, perhaps the most important way we learn about the universe is, is science. But, but then the meaning of this universe at the personal level, it's something that's open to every individual's uh, look on life, basically. Are you trying to look back uh, before the Big Bang? Are you trying to use science to understand those pre-moments? Well, we are now in a position where we can understand the first fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the second after the Big Bang, which is pretty astonishing if you think about it. Looking even further back, well, there are speculative theories as to what might have happened before time zero, if you like, and how the Big Bang itself might be a consequence of previous phases of the life of the universe, etc. But all of this is largely speculative at the moment. We can't really go back to time equals zero because at, the, at that point, very near that point, the laws of physics as we know them stop being valid and so we need new types of physics and new type of knowledge to access that time equals zero or even what came before. There are many speculative ideas but none of them so far has been uh, able to give any observational evidence for themselves. Do those, do those moments of speculation fill you with, what do they fill you with? As, as working scientists, I think we need to be reminded of, of, the, of the incredible, incredibly uh, deep meaning of the questions that we, that we keep asking. So 90% of our time is spent in very mundane tasks, trying to understand some piece of code that doesn't work or trying to decrypt some data sets that don't quite make sense, etc. But it's important for us to be reminded of how incredibly uh, interesting and deep and, and fundamental those questions are. So whenever I have the time to step back and think about those questions in, 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 and contemplate the big picture and talking to the public and engage, engaging the public is very much about this as well for me. Something that I, as a scientist, get back from the dialogue of the public, the sense of wonder. Well, I am filled precisely with that sense of incredible wonder and a little bit of a headiness and the feeling that it's incredible that we can actually even address, start addressing those questions and we can start to understand those incredibly uh, different moments in the history of the universe. Professor Roberto Trotta is author of The Edge of the Sky. Uh, all right, well, let's, let's answer a few questions using your language. What's the universe, excuse me, what is the all there is made of? So the all there is is made of uh, 20 times as much uh, dark matter as uh, something as normal matter, the matter that you and I are made of. But also there is a, a, another big question about the all there is, which is what is the biggest part of the all there is made of? And that, that is what I call in my book the dark push, which is uh, uh, something that's making the all there is grow, grow faster and faster with time and that will one day make all the star crowds around our own star crowd, the, the white road, uh, disappear uh, at the far edge of the sky. And so those two big questions are the big questions that keep student people engaged and many sleepless nights. A million years from now or whenever we get there, we'll see a black sky, but it won't be an empty sky. What is the big push as we know it now? Well, 
We can only speculate about its fundamental nature. One of the theories is that this is something to do with uh, a property of empty space itself. And that's something that Einstein himself uh, speculated about many, many years ago, 70 years ago. And he actually made up something that he called the cosmological constant, which of course is not called like that in the book because I couldn't use cosmological, I couldn't use constant. So there there would be other words for it in the book. But in uh, in, uh, taking a shortcut here, Einstein speculated that that there could be something like a cosmological constant, a property of the vacuum that would keep the universe exactly balanced. It would keep the universe from expanding, would keep the universe from from falling onto itself, a static, forever uh, equal to itself universe. That was Einstein's idea of the universe, which turned out to be wrong. The universe actually is expanding. The universe came from a Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago. And nowadays, we actually know that this cosmological constant, the dark push, is actually at work today, and it's making the universe grow bigger with time at an ever-accelerating pace. What it is fundamentally, we don't understand. We very much don't understand. And it's one of the biggest mysteries in physics today. Just the fact that you said it could be the function of emptiness, but is there is there emptiness? Well, emptiness, uh, I, d- I didn't really call it emptiness. I call it vacuum. Vacuum in physics is very different from being empty. And again, it's one of those technical jargony words that we shouldn't be using as physicists. But um, empty space is not really empty. Empty space is full of particles that come in and out of existence all the time. And those particles, particles, of course, is not one of the words in the book, so I call them drops because drops is a nice metaphor, a nice analogy, I think, for them. So those drops coming in and out of existence all the time, they they might be responsible for giving uh, this empty, not quite so empty space, its properties that make it uh, grow faster and faster with time. You came to this idea in part, uh, you you had uh, come across a website where somebody was trying to describe their job in uh, less than a thousand, using those same thousand words that uh, you that you had used, and you had a good time doing it. You went up on stage and talked about it. People really loved it. Why do you think people were entranced, first with the idea of just trying to use the thousand most common words to describe a job, and then this idea, this as you call it, this crazy idea that some of your friends uh, encourage you to follow, which is to explain what we know about the universe. Why are we uh, yearning for that? What's the need you're feeling? I think because it's fundamentally surprising. If you look through the thousand words list, you, the first time you, you go through the list, you, you're quite surprised to see which words are on it and which aren't. And so it's only when you actually start writing with the thousand words that you realize how hard it actually is to do it. And so it's stimulating because it forces you to think anew, to come up with new mental images for, for concepts that you thought were familiar. And that's precisely why I thought it was challenging but also it could be potentially interesting for other people to talk about the old is the biggest questions and the biggest um, um, entity in uh, that there is the universe itself using a very sparse lexicon a, a, a very um, limited vocabulary which however could just be enough to describe the entirety of the universe. So this this big challenge, I think, the, you know, it's like um, trying to cross the North Pole wearing only flip flops, <laughs> you know, just trying to do something of, of in, which is somewhat of a grand nature, but with very limited means. And it's a little bit a donkey shot type of approach where you you try to do something crazy and you don't really have the means to do it and just go for it and see what happens. And this is what stimulated me, challenged me. And I hope if some of that shines through the book as it is now and my readers can can enjoy it, I'll be very, very happy. Well, I enjoy the notion that you are uh, trying to create new images, new ways for us to envision uh, the all there is. Uh, you talked about uh, the possibility of 
a person like me and you on another in another universe on another planet doing the same thing. I read many of Brian Greene's books mm. about it and how we think about multiple universes. But uh, your uh, description of it was, was pretty nice. Do you remember that description? So is that the description where uh, the, our student woman thinks about uh, how crazy it is that somebody else just like her could be doing exactly the same job but with slight, on a slightly different and different part of the multiverse? Or the, of course, without talking it, about yeah. it. In Nor could you even use the word for coins. You talked about round disks with heads on them. Right. Yes. Yes. That's that's my that's my way of expressing how improbable our universe appears to be and how finely tuned, if you like, uh, our our part of the multiverse, if if this is what it is, appears to be. And so I, I got this image of the 400 coins, uh, you know, those round gray discs that you used to pay for parking, because of course coins I can't use. And so I got the image of the 400. But you can use parking, which I think is funny. Yes. Exactly. Parking or 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 or, or buy, buy yourself coffee. You can also use that as an expression. So, and so you got this image of 400 discs and all show heads and 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 this is how strangely fine-tuned our universe actually is so this is uh, i think the, the, this is one of the examples uh, that go at the heart of what i was trying to do namely come up with new ways of describing things that have been described before in many ways in, in excellent books like ryan greens and others uh, my book is different my book tries to explain those concepts using a very a very small vocabulary and using new pictures images that nobody probably has come up with before simply because you know, they had the luxury of being able to use all the words they wanted and I don't. And so this forced me to, into a new kind of poetic, if you like, straitjacket. Well, let's start. There is poetry there, and you talked about uh, some people thought you would be limited to your ideas, and you, you embraced the notion of haikus and the simplicity of haikus. Did this effort uh, awaken in you the kind of wonder that you first had as a scientist? Very much. Those, those uh, metaphors that, that I had to resort to to describe those ideas really forced me to think back at those concepts that I thought were familiar f for me in, in a different way. So it, it was a really, a, a really interesting phenomenon. The voice of the book grew out of the vocabulary itself. It's not something that I invented. It's something that sort of grew upon me as I got better and better using this limited lexicon for, for the task of describing the older is. And in doing so, it very much surprised me again so it, it, it gave me new energy and new sense of wonder for the very same concepts that I've been working with for a decade now but now I, I see them with new eyes. And any new ideas or ways to approach it? Definitely new ways of approaching it in terms of trying to communicate it with the public. And so, and so that, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very eager to hear from the readers whether those new images and, and ideas, whether they work for them, what, what kind of mental pictures do they evoke for them, because um, it's very much experimental. So I, I don't know whether this works for anybody but for myself at the moment. So I really want to hear from people and, and hear from, from them whether those images have, been, have worked or not. So I want to I want to deviate from the book. The beauty of the web is that uh, we can find out all sorts of things. You have a wonderful website. Talks about all the work you do. Um, you're a working scientist. You have a consultancy in the field of statistical data analysis, data mining, and probabilities modeling. And on your webpage, you write: If you have a problem involving data and uncertainty, I deliver targeted, cost-effective, custom-made solutions. Mm -hmm. So abandoning the mm -hmm. a thousand words. Give me an example of that. Well, we live in a world which is which is awash with data, and big data are now really uh, the, the, the name of the game. And many companies and enterprises and and, and businesses have questions that involve probabilistic 
answers or probabilistic modeling. So, uh, but they don't have the perhaps they don't have the means of answering those questions uh, in house, and so they, they might need to resort to outside experts that can come in and take a look at their problem and come up with a solution that will uh, make it work for for them. Can you tell me of one of your clients without violating any trust? Um, Let's see. So one example involved uh, an interesting case uh, involving the shipping industry. Now, I I don't know anything about the the maritime shipping industry because I'm an astrophysicist, so I don't know anything about shipping cargo across the world. But um, there was some testing to be be done on the ship's contents. And the results of 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 this testing were controversial because those were measurements that were made and the interpretation had to be statistical so it was an interesting problem where uh, an expert witness was required to go in and understand the measurements understand what they meant statistically and how those data could be used to tell whether the cargo was contractually compliant or not and so that's an interesting angle for me because it it, it, it gives me interesting challenging problems to work on which are very different from my everyday job yeah well i like that it also has to be cost effective so you're in business and you have to be a competitive businessman even when you're talking about big data that's right, and, and the world of business is very different from the world of academia, where we, you know, in academia we tend to work over much longer terms because we've got big, uh, big horizon in terms of time scales. But in the world of business, you have to be fast, you have to be effective, and you have to deliver within three weeks, one month. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very quick turnaround time. That, that, that's a very different challenge from academia, academic questions. You also run uh, training workshops on probability theory and statistical methods. Your aim to bring to clients the latest advancements in statistical analysis from cutting-edge research in astrophysics. Who needs that work? It's surprising, isn't it? Because you think that you know, if you need statistical analysis or, or data analysis capabilities, you wouldn't dream of going to an astrophysicist. But the fact is, in astrophysics, we have some of the most complex, most difficult to understand and interpret data around. And so we, the astrophysicists, and specifically people like myself, who are experts in astrostatistics, which is the statistical interpretation of astronomical data and cosmological data, where we have developed tools and methods that are very uh, flexible and versatile and can be used in a variety of situations. And so, surprisingly, um, people come to astrophysicists like myself to learn the the newest methods, the advancements that have not made it out of uh, academic papers yet and and therefore uh, can give them competitive advantage over their their other uh, business uh, rivals. I find that wild. So we're not just talking about people who are trying to build rocket ships. We may also be talking about people who are just trying to figure out a better way to get uh, a message beamed across the planet. Yes, or people in the finance industry or people who are uh, trying to get an, uh, an advantage in terms of insurance, pricing, all sorts of, all sorts of big data problems like this can benefit from this new type of solutions and new kind of algorithms that we have developed for astrophysics. All right, last question. You also run the Hands-On Universe. It's a program of outreach, public engagement. You work with kids. Um, again, this is the idea of putting into citizens uh, sort of an everyday knowledge about what is happening in the world that part of being a scientist writing this book the edge of the sky is how critical is that for science today getting back to where we started about the critique of science or the dismissal of science very critical. I think it's important, fundamental. It's a part of the job of being a scientist, being able to give back to society something in, in return for the fact that 
we are being enabled by society to spend our working lives uh, puzzling out those very deep questions. So I, I think it's very much part of the job description of a scientist to be engaged with the, with the society at large and specifically with the parts of, the so of society that are not as lucky as ourselves and perhaps do not have the kind of stimuli that led us to become scientists to try to enthuse those young people for science, for technology, for better ways of, of, of uh, really uh, having a better life themselves. Did something like that happen to you when you were growing up in Italy, I assume? Did you get exposed to something that surprised you and entranced you? Uh, yes, I grew up in Switzerland, actually. I'm, I'm from Italy, but I was born and grew up in an Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. And, and yes, I, at college, I had a very a very enthusiastic physics teacher who really made a difference and, and at, the, at, at, the, at the critical point in time when I didn't know what I wanted to become, uh, being exposed to his enthusiasm and, and his charisma as well really made a difference and in a way carved my path for the future, so very much so, yes. Roberto Trotta, an astrophysicist at Imperial College London. He's author of The Edge of the Sky, All You Need to Know About the All There Is. You can find out more about his work at robertotrotta.com. This is In Residence, Conversations from Town Hall. I'm Steve Scher. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Stitcher. Also, if you want to know what's happening at Town Hall, go to their website, townhallseattle.org. Thanks for listening.